This is the Rise City Church Sermon Podcast. We are a church in Gresham, Oregon, on a mission to rise up and saturate our city with the gospel. We would love for you to join us on Sundays. For more information, check out our website, rise.cc. Whether you already follow Jesus or are exploring Christianity, we hope that you experience the power of God through this message. Well, good morning. I love the test of strength is my first thing I get to do here with you all. I passed. my name is Justin Anderson. It's good to be with you. Uh, like Jason said, I grew up in Boring, and uh, I was born in Southeast Portland. My family moved out to Boring uh, in the 80s. That's how old I am. And uh, I grew up uh, next to Scott Bean and, and his family, which is crazy. If you told me that Scotty Bean would be preaching, uh, you know, 20 years later, I'd be like, Scott Bean is still alive? <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Uh, I actually, uh, I skated at Skate World uh, when I was a kid. I think, uh, I think I kissed a girl right here, which is, uh, which is weird. I never thought I'd be preaching uh, in that spot. <clears throat> Wasn't very good, but uh, the sermon will be better. Um, I'm married. Uh, <laughs> To that girl. No, uh, I'm married. I live in LA now. It's terrible. Um, uh, Not the marriage. Marriage is good. Uh, I have five kids. I got five kids. Yep. And and most of them were uh, on purpose. Uh, They're they're great. They're great. I grew up up here. I went to Good Shepherd uh, Church. I went to school, Good Shepherd Schools. Uh, Very fond memories of of Boring and Gresham and this whole area. I moved right before high school. I would have gone to San Barlow High School, uh, but uh, my family moved to Phoenix and... uh, and now I've been all over the West Coast. So uh, it's really, really fun to be with you here. Uh, I love Jason and Nolan and the whole team, and uh, everybody's great. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to preach the entire book of Jonah, okay? So buckle up. Uh, we, uh, we're going to be here for a minute. Um, if you're not familiar with the book of Jonah, I want to do a really quick overview of it. Uh, I, I think I can do the whole book because I think for the most part, people are f- pretty familiar with the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah. If you're not, I'm going to give you the story really quickly. It's a crazy one, and, uh, and we're not going to get bogged down in details today. So here's the story. Jonah is a prophet uh, in Israel. Okay, the prophets, their job was that God would tell them something, and their job was to go tell Israel that thing. That was the normal part of a prophet's job. Very little about being a prophet was telling the future. Okay, when we think about prophecy, we always think about future. That's part of it. But the majority of what the prophets did was God came to the prophets and said, Israel's a mess and you need to go tell them. And they go, all right, you know, and then they go tell Israel, hey, God said you're a mess, I'm sorry. And, uh, and so the prophets were not well liked, okay, uh, because they had mostly that kind of message to give. So what's rare and unique about this story is that God came to this guy named Jonah and said, I've got a message for you, but it's not for Israel. 
you've got to go to this place called Nineveh, which was in many ways the arch enemy of Israel, one of their kind of warring enemies. You need to go to Nineveh and tell them that their evil has come up before me and that they've got destruction in their future if nothing changes, okay? And so the, the normal part of this is that God came to the prophet, said, go tell a people a thing. The weird part is that God came to the prophet and said, go tell these other guys a thing, right? So imagine being told by God to go to your arch enemy, someone who is actively trying to murder you and go, hey, God's not real pleased with your uh, murdering, right? You know, and uh, that wouldn't go super well. It'd be a kind of a scary thing. And so Jonah like a good prophet, hears the word of the Lord and runs the opposite direction, right? Okay, so he gets on a boat and he goes to a place called Tarshish, okay? A lot of fun words in this story. It's part of what makes it so great. So everybody on three say Tarshish. One, two, three, Tarshish. Pretty fun, right? It's not bad. So he gets on a boat to head to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction of Nineveh because he is rebelling against God. So what happens is on the way, a big storm hits the boat and the sailors are freaking out. They don't know what's going on. It's a very unconventional kind of storm. They don't know what's happening. So they're looking at each other like, who did something dumb, right? Like whose fault is this? And at the time, Jonah was in the bottom of the boat asleep. Okay, and so the, the sailors go to Jonah and go, what are you doing? Why, how are you sleeping right now? We've got this crazy storm. You did something, didn't you? Right, like Jonah just had this, you know, guilty look on his face or something. And Jonah goes, yeah, I'm a prophet. God told me to go here. I'm going there. And this is probably my fault. And they're like, well, what do we do? Jonah goes, you probably have to throw me in the water. Which, you know, there's all these moments in the Bible where you're like, what, 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 like, what's happening? Like, why didn't Jonah just go, I should probably jump in the water, right? Like, I'm the prophet. I should probably take responsibility for this and jump in the water. He goes, I'm, I'm just probably not going to do that. So you're, you're, you grown sailor men are probably just going to have to pick me up and throw me into the water. And the sailors are like, you know, that's weird. We're not going to do that. And so they row harder and harder and harder for another, I don't know, eight, nine minutes and then come back and go, oh, okay, we're going to throw you in, okay? And so they pick up Jonah right before they go, God, if you're there, like, sorry, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and then they throw him in the water and the storm goes away. So then Jonah goes into the depths of the water. He's about to drown. He's about to die. He calls out to God and God saves him by having a big fish swallow him. Okay, so this is the point in the story where all the skeptics and you know, non-Christians and anyone who's just basic level of intelligence goes, oh, really? <laughs> like, I'm sorry, like a big fish swallowed Jonah and he survived for three days in the big fish and then, you know, God spit him up on the land and that's just like, we're going with that, right? Like, I feel like non-Christians in the room are like looking around like, we all think this is crazy, right? Like, this is a, a joke or something. Here's the thing. We don't have time to get into all of that, but I'll say this. When you open the Bible, the presumption is there is a God, right? right? And, and, and in fact, statistically speaking, like 80 to 90% of Americans believe in some sort of God or higher power, okay? So if you believe in a God or a higher power, you open the Bible and presume God, but you're like, yeah, I believe in God, but not a God who could have a fish eat a guy, then you have a terrible imagination, 
right? Like they're, they're, just wait till you get to resurrection. You know, like if this is a problem for you, it's gonna get way worse. Jesus like walks on water and heals people. It's crazy, right? So this is like, yeah, it's crazy. Let's all acknowledge that's crazy. And if there is a God, it's like part of being God that you get to do crazy stuff, right? So if you got a God in mind who can't do crazy stuff, you got a lame God. I'm sorry, like this is just, this is kind of a cool God thing, okay? So the story goes, God sends the fish, swallows Jonah. Jonah gets spit up on the shores in Nineveh, and God goes, okay, let's try this again. Go to Nineveh and tell them that their evil has come up before me and they need to repent. Jonah's like, okay, cool. I don't want the fish thing again. So he goes into Nineveh, and Nineveh is this huge city. It's a three-day walk across the city, right? So Jonah gets about a day's walk in, and he starts, I mean, he's just walking through the streets going, all right, hey, uh, your evil's come up against God, and he's going to destroy you. You know, like, imagine the first time he said that, he was like, "Eh, you're going to murder me now, like, but they didn't. They responded by going, well, that's bad. Let's, let's repent. And the whole city repented from the poorest of the poor all the way to the king. The king called for a fast. He said, nobody eats so that God might relent. So all of the king, his court, all the people, in fact, they said even the animals weren't allowed to eat, which is just kind of messed up. They weren't sinning, right? They weren't murdering anyone. But everybody had to fast and God relented. Okay, so this is like, this is the end of the story. This is the good news, right? So Jonah, the prophet, is finally obedient. He goes to Nineveh. They all repent. They're singing, you know, how great is our God together or something like that. And Jonah's happy and it's the end, right? No, it's not the end. Jonah's a jerk. And so (laughs) Jonah gets mad. That's the end of the story. Jonah preaches the gospel, everybody repents, he gets mad, has a tizzy fit, goes outside the city and sits down, like crossing his fingers, hoping God will still destroy his enemy. He doesn't know for sure that God has chosen to relent, so he goes outside the city and waits, hoping that like, I don't know, burning sulfur from the sky is going to come. He's like, I can't wait, right? But it doesn't happen, and he gets mad. And the whole story ends with God talking to Jonah, going, you're mad about this. Is that a good thing? Does that, that make sense to you? That I would save these people and you'd be mad? And Jonah goes, yeah, it makes sense. And the story ends. It's the, one of the weirdest stories in the whole Bible, right? Like I think the fish part isn't the weirdest part. The part that it ends with no resolution and just Jonah being a jerk is the weirdest part. But it was written probably many generations, a couple generations after Jonah, possibly by the prophet Jeremiah. It was probably written when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, and it was a way for God to tell the people of Israel, don't think about Babylon the way Jonah thought about Nineveh. Because y'all are in exile, and Babylon's your enemy, and you hate them, don't do what Jonah did because I'm going to use you for the sake of Babylon. And if you think of them as your enemy and you won't love them the way I've sent you into exile to love them, then you're going to make the mistake that Jonah made. Okay, so that's, that's the story of Jonah. And I wish the sermon were over, but we're, that was the introduction, okay? What I want us to see in this story is a, a pattern, 
a cycle that happens for Jonah, for Nineveh, and in fact, also for the sailors. And the same movement happens over and over through their lives and in this story, and it happens in yours. In fact, I think what we see, if we kind of back out of the story and look at some meta themes, I think we see the pattern of the Christian life, okay? So that's what I want us to see in this story. So we're gonna jump in. There's four things that are gonna happen that are gonna be our little cycle, and then we'll see how, how we're supposed to respond to that. Number one, need, need. Seeing our limits, need. Sailors in chapter one, verses four and five said, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up for the sea grew more and more tempestuous, another great word, tempestuous against them. So the sailors dealt with need. There was this crazy storm. They were concerned that the boat was going to break up and that they were all going to die. Jonah, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, is in the bottom of the, of the sea here, and it says, he prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Notice, even Jonah can acknowledge the fact that he didn't get accidentally thrown in. In fact, he doesn't even blame the sailors for throwing him into the deep. He says, for you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. That was the need of Jonah, the pain, the suffering, the need. And then Nineveh, in chapter three, verse four, it says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay, so this theme in all three of these characters' lives is a moment of need, physical need, emotional need, relational need, existential need, intellectual need. It is the starting point of every person's journey. It is the one constant in the human experience. Every single person in this room is either just coming out of a season of pain and suffering, you are currently in a season of pain and suffering, or you're about to enter into a season of pain and suffering. It is the unavoidable reality of the human experience. It is also the thing that so many of us struggle to make sense of. It's the number one thing. So I, I've planted churches, like Jason said, in, in Phoenix, in San Francisco, in Seattle. I'm now in Los Angeles. These are godless places, right? Godless places. My gosh, pray for me. The consistent theme in every one of those places is that the biggest question, the problem that people have with God, with faith, with Christianity is the problem of suffering and evil. Why am I suffering? We, we, it may be presented as, well, I've got an intellectual problem with evil, but really at the core is, why am I suffering? Or why are the people I love suffering? That's what we want to know. We have to make sense of it. 
We, we, we can't make sense of it, but we desperately want to make sense of it. It has to have a purpose for us to like be able to calibrate that pain and suffering. For us to be able to go, okay, I can understand that I have to go through this, but it better have a purpose at the end, right? Like how many of you work out? Actually, never mind, don't admit that. Some of you work out or have worked out or have seen it on TV, right? You, you understand you understand the pain of it, the suffering of exercise or dieting or any of the things that we do to ourselves, but we only do it. Nobody works out for fun. And if you know someone who works out for fun, stop being friends with them. That's a, that's a bad person, okay? We work out for a purpose. We put ourselves through pain because we want to be a different kind of person. It has to make sense. Nobody goes to the gym and does squats and they're like, I just like squatting. Like, that's weird, okay? We do that for a purpose. So when pain and suffering come into our lives that we aren't choosing, we want to know the purpose. We, we want to know what is this producing? Why do I have to go through this? And here's the thing. I don't know. And you're not probably going to know. Not fully. I mean, not anytime soon. Maybe in heaven. That might be your first question. I don't know if there's like a long line for God or whatever. But most of that line is going to be, why? Why the suffering? Because there's all kinds of reasons for suffering. Right? Like some of them we can figure out, right? Like a lot of our suffering is because we're dumb. Right, we do dumb stuff, and the result is we suffer for it. Like, that's a pretty easily identifiable kind of reason for suffering. It's not always easy to admit, but it's easy to, like, yeah, I was dumb, and then I suffered for it. It's easier to notice that in other people, actually, right? You were dumb, and that's why you're suffering. It's the easiest to do so in marriage, but that's a different sermon, okay? There are a lot of reasons for our suffering. Right, I mean, even in this story, we see that, that Jonah endured suffering because he was disobeying God actively. The sailors endured suffering because of Jonah's disobedience. Anyone ever suffered or had pain because of someone else's sin and stupidity? Yeah. Your husband? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Nineveh was enduring pain and suffering because of their own sin and evil. And so therefore there was a threat of suffering. So there's all kinds of different reasons why we might experience suffering. And sometimes we know, and sometimes we don't know, and sometimes we know a little bit, but we don't know the fullest thing. But I would argue, and I think that this story and the rest of the scriptures would argue, that if nothing else, the one thing that's always true, no matter what the details are, one of the reasons, the big reason why we endure pain and suffering is to help us see our limits. Help us to see that what we have in our life is just a, 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 a version, like a poor version of what could be. That God breaks into our life, interrupts the daily grind of life to introduce something that opens our eyes to the little vision of life that we have been experiencing. Pain is often, to God, an interruption of our daily self-involvement. It's a reminder that our experience is not sufficient. So I read this the other day, that by the time you're thirsty, you are already dehydrated. 
right? Like we don't, I, I don't drink water until I'm very thirsty. And even then it's coffee, okay? And so until I'm very thirsty, then I drink water, okay? But that, by that time, it's, I'm, it, I've, I'm, my body is literally suffering. That's what it takes to get me to go and drink water. Oftentimes, the world, our experience of life gives us just enough pleasure, just enough okay to where we can kind of forget about God. Like, this is good enough. Most of us are not currently in a lot of pain. Most of us currently aren't, you know, facing down the loss of a job. Most of us, most of our lives, most of the time are just kind of okay. And so because of that, we don't experience the need to the degree that we would reach out to God. Now, uh, I, my conviction is, and, and, and the conviction of Rise City Church is that the scriptures are the, the center of what we understand about God and faith and the world and all those things. And we believe that that is true. And C.S. Lewis is really good and kind of a close second to the Bible. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. If you haven't read it, uh, I highly recommend it because you're either coming out of pain, in pain, going to be in pain, pain's a constant, you should read about the problem of pain. He says this, now God, who has made us, knows what we are and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him as long as he leaves us any other resort where it can even plausibly be looked for. While what we call our own life remains agreeable, we will not surrender it to him. What then can God do in our interests but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away the plausible sources of false happiness? It is just here where God's providence seems at first to be most cruel, that the divine humility, the stooping down of the highest, most deserves praise. Let me implore the reader to try to believe, if only for the moment, that God may really be right when he thinks that our modest prosperity and the happiness of our children, he was talking about somebody else, but I'm translating it for you. You're welcome. The happiness of our children are not enough to make us blessed. That our modest prosperity and the happiness of our children are not enough to make us blessed. That all this must fall from us in the end, and that if we have not learned to know him, we will be wretched. He, therefore, troubles us, warning us in advance of an insufficiency that one day we will have to discover. The life to themselves and their families stands between us and the recognition of our need. He makes that life less sweet to us. Lewis goes, listen, and that was a lot of translation of pronouns. I'm pretty good at that. But Lewis goes, listen, our life is, we've, we've been kind of lulled into this idea that our life is good enough. We're not super thirsty. And as long as we feel like our life is pretty good and good enough, we will never reach out beyond that life and submit that life to God. And so God, in part, one of the reasons for need and suffering and pain is that God might make that life less sweet to us so that we can see the limits of it. That yes, it can satisfy us to a degree, but it cannot satisfy us fully. And so he unveils to us, opens our eyes to the limits of our life's ability to make us happy. 
because we are always this close away, this close from, from being hurt, from, from getting cancer, from losing a loved one, from losing a job, from, from some catastrophe in our life, we are always this far away from it, and it is completely out of our control. But when it's not happening, we somehow get blind to it. Even like that moment, that blissfully ignorant moment where we come out of suffering, we're like, wow, I will never forget how painful that was and, the, and, and how much I needed God, and that would be amazing. And like, oh, look at this shiny thing. Like it takes a, like takes a half a second for us to forget all of that lesson. And so God brings need, he brings pain, he brings suffering in part sometimes to open our eyes to the limits of the joys of this world. Okay, so what then? Because this, the this is the big problem, right? Because we hate pain. No one likes pain. No one likes suffering. No one signs up for need. And so when we see it, when it actually enters into our life and opens our eyes for that brief moment where we have clarity and we go, oh, yeah, I was relying on that thing. I thought my money or my relationship or my job or my thing or my place or whatever was going to be the thing that made me okay and now it was taken from me. Now I can see the fragility of it. Now I can see how much more I need. Now I can see that it was not actually that good. It was actually very weak and that there's so much more on offer. What do we do in that moment? Number two, confession. Need, confession. The sailors back in chapter one, verse 14, 15, it says, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Here's what happened right before that. Jonah said, you're probably going to throw me in the sea. They went, okay, we're going to row harder. Then they rowed harder for a little while, and they're like, okay, we're done. And so then they said, all right, God, we're going to throw Jonah into the water, but we tried. We really tried. We used all our might. We exhausted our own energy and power, and we hit the limit of it, and now we're going to throw this dude in the water. That's our next move. They confessed that all their rowing could not solve their problem. Jonah, in chapter 2, in the belly of the whale, says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will repay. And he confesses, salvation belongs to the Lord. Nineveh, after hearing the message of Jonah in chapter 3, says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. And he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands." Jonah told God when he's in the belly of the whale, he goes, you cast me into the deep. You have brought me up. And he sums it up by saying salvation belongs to the Lord. He acknowledges God's sovereign role. Confession at its core is acknowledging God's godness and our humanness. That's confession. Confession is saying you're God I'm not God. Confession isn't, th this, is, this is where people get hung up. Confession isn't thinking of yourself less 
per se. Like, as it, it's a, you're not less of a person. It is, though, getting the order right. That God is God and you are human. That is what confession is. I have five kids, as I mentioned, and one of them, in particular, my oldest, who is a girl, um, I, I have to tell her repeatedly, you are not the boss. I have said that phrase about a million times. She's 14. You are not the boss. You are not the mom. You are not the dad. You are not in charge. You are not the president of the United States. You are nothing, I tell her. You are not the boss. And I thought when she was little, I mean, she started doing this. I remember my, my, I have a younger brother who's just like a year and a half younger than me. And we'd be standing around after church and she was two years old and we'd be standing talking and she'd go, you move there. And he would go like this. And I'd be like, don't do that. You're creating a monster. She thinks she can boss around grown men as a two-year-old. And the truth is she could, I used her for that a lot, actually. She was... <laughs> Health. She was my executive pastor for a season. Um, <laughs> we had to remind her, she is not the boss. Here's the thing. You're not the boss either. You're not the boss. You're not the boss of your own life. You're not the boss of your marriage. You're not the boss of the world. You're not the boss of your work. You're not the, you're not the boss. Confession is us just saying, God, you're the boss. I tried. I rode my hardest. I tried to save this thing on my own. I worked hard. I worked 60 hours, and then I worked 70 hours, and then I worked 80 hours, and then I worked 200 hours a day, and I just couldn't do it. And I, I, I worked on this relationship, and I worked on this relationship, or, or I, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and I read my Bible, read my Bible, read my Bible, and I, and I was disciplined and disciplined and disciplined and disciplined, and I couldn't do it because I'm not the boss. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. It's the opposite of Stuart Smalley. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good looking enough. I'm not in, I, I can't do it. That's confession. And for some reason in us, we have to hit our limits where we exhaust our own strength because we want to be the boss. We want to be enough. We want to be independent. I am convinced that this issue is the issue at the heart of all unbelief. It is an unwillingness to say, I'm not the boss, I'm not in control. God, you're God, you get to define what is and what isn't. Confession is that. Lewis, again, from the Problem of Pain, says that the first and lowest operation of pain shatters the illusion that all is well. The second shatters the illusion that what we have, whether good or bad in itself, is our own and enough for us. Everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God in interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, I love that, somewhere, didn't look it up, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. That's, there's, there's nowhere for him to put it. 
Or as a friend of mine said, we regard God as an airman regards his parachute. It's there for emergencies, but he hopes he'll never have to use it. Because we want to be able to do it. We want to be able to tell people we did it. We want the credit. We want to be the person that did it, accomplished it, saved it. And to be able to, to have to say, no, God did it. Ah, oh, it's painful. I want you to think I'm awesome. Not God. I mean, as a pastor, I never think that. That's what I want. So here's the thing. We have need that opens our eyes, that, that eye-opening moment when we, when we can capture that moment and confess, yes, God, you've revealed to me that I'm not the boss, you're the boss, I have limits, I'm a human, you're God, I'm not God, then that enables us to actually confess the truth about the world, but the only way we will do that, the only way we will actually confess our humanness or confess our sin, confess our fault, is if this third thing's true, and that's grace. Grace is confession's necessary ingredient. We will never confess our weakness, our sin, or our humanness if we are not sure there is grace on the other side. Why would we ever confess sin if we know that what's coming is condemnation? We never would. Right? Like criminals only confess when they're getting a plea bargain, when they're getting something out of it, when there is some amount of forgiveness. Grace is the necessary ingredient. The sailors, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Jonah, chapter 2, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. That's sometimes grace, is vomit. <laughs> Nineveh, in chapter 3, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented at the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here's the thing about grace. It doesn't take much, right? It doesn't take much. What, what did it require from the people in the story in order for God to be gracious from? Did they have to beg? Did they have to plead? Did they have to earn? Did they have to perform? No. Sailors threw a guy into the water. Grace. <laughs> Jonah at the bottom of the ocean. What could he have possibly said? What could he, I mean, he wasn't performing. All he said was help or, right? Like, <laughs> that's it. God goes, okay, grace. Nineveh, all it says is they believe God. Grace. That's it. I mean, that's the incredible thing about grace. It's the incredible thing about the grace of God, and it runs so counter to every other relationship we have in our lives where we have to earn and earn and earn and perform and perform and form and beg and beg and beg and plead and plead and plead, and then there's maybe the hint of the promise of forgiveness. In that moment where need turns into confession, it's almost like we go, I'm sorry, and we get the first syllable of sorry out, and God goes, forgiven. Grace. You ever been so anxious to give something to somebody, like give them a present that you're like unwrapping it for them? <laughs> you're like, you do mine first, do mine first. It's a car. You know, like you can't even. <laughs> That's God with grace. That's God with grace. That's why we can confess, because God is on the other end, other, on the other side of the equation, just going, just say it, just say it, just think it, just think it, maybe start to think it. And I'm there with forgiveness and grace. 
Lewis, again, I call this, he says, I call this a divine humility. Catch this idea. This is so brilliant. I call this a divine humility because it is a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us. A poor thing to come to him as a last resort, to offer up our own when it is no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms, but he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. And we only come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. The same humility is shown by all those divine appeals to our fears, which trouble high-minded readers of Scripture. It says, it is hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell. Yet even this he accepts. The creature's illusion of self-sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. And by trouble or fear of trouble on earth, by crude fear of the eternal flames, God shatters it, unmindful of his glory's diminution. Wow, is a hard one to say. I got it, though. We should have to beg and plead and perform and earn for God to forgive us. That makes sense. God is the highest being in the universe, and we are us, and so there ought to be some steps to climb so that God would bestow upon us his love and affection and grace and the, and the, the inclusion into his family. We ought to have a mountain to climb. That makes logical sense, and yet that is not the case. He goes, God will take the little, I mean, if someone came up to me and said, hey, I need your help. I've asked literally every other person I know. I've tried everything I possibly can. This is, you are literally my last resort. I'd be like, wow, so, such an honor. <laughs> no, I would make them work for it. I'd be like, oh, I'm your last resort. Now, so you're pretty desperate. That's going to cost you, you know? That's not what God does. That's not what God does. He goes, I can be your last resort. I don't care. I love you. You can try everything else. I don't care. I love you. I, I want the best for you. I want you to flourish. I want you to, to, to have peace. I want you to have joy. So I don't care if I'm the last resort. I shouldn't be. That's on you. I mean, that, that you're just walking through more pain and suffering unnecessarily. You should come to me first because I am the only source of joy and peace and love in the universe. But even if you come to me last, I'm still going to give it to you and I'm not going to give you any guilt. I'm not going to give you any shame. I'm just going to give it to you because I love you and I want you to have it. That's divine humility. That's the grace that awaits us. Need, confession, grace, and lastly, change. Sailors in chapter 1, verse 16 says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They saw what God did and responded. Jonah, at least for a minute, changed. So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh. Nineveh declared, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Here, here's what change looks like. Okay. In, in the, the very first words of Jesus recorded in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, he says, uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. First words recorded of Jesus in, in the gospel of Mark, okay? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's your response. Repent and believe the gospel. Here, this is my best illustration. This is what I got, so you're about to see it, okay? We're living our lives like this. 
We think this is what's good, this is what will give life, this will bring joy, this will bring happiness, this will bring satisfaction. Pain happens, suffering happens, need happens. We realize, oh, this isn't it. This isn't gonna bring us the joy and the happiness and all the satisfaction that we want. This is confession and repentance. Oh, it's this actually, it's God. And then we walk in that direction towards the thing we now believe will give us what we need. Pretty good, huh? That's it, it's that simple. We're walking in a direction, we go, this is what I think is gonna give me everything I need. God brings pain into our lives that shows us, reveals to us the inadequacy of what we thought was the thing that could give us what we want. We go, oh wow, yeah, it's not that, it's actually this, but now we have to walk in it. I, I, I meet people all the time all the time, Christians in my churches over the last 20 years who go, okay, I was walking this direction, God revealed to me, this is broken, this isn't ever gonna give me what I want, so I should definitely turn around, and I'm gonna turn around, and I believe this is broken, I believe this is killing me, and I'm definitely gonna turn around. They never do. And sometimes, I mean, that's part of our life. I mean, partly what, what really this illustration ought to be is us going like, yeah, this is broken. I shouldn't do that anymore. Okay, well, this is broken. I shouldn't do this. Okay, yeah, right, right. Oh, yeah, this is broken. That's our life, right? Because we never go, oh, yeah, this is broken and stupid. This is God, and I'm going to faithfully follow him forever. N never. <laughs> Which is why I said at the beginning, this is a cycle. Because here's what actually happens. We have a moment where God brings pain, shows the inadequacy of the thing we've chased, and he goes, this is broken, don't follow it. And we go, yeah, you're right. I'm gonna follow this way. And then we forget, and we turn back. And God brings pain and suffering into our lives that reminds us this is not the thing that's gonna bring joy. And we confess, and we get grace, and we go back in his direction. And then we get bored or distracted, and we go, oh no, I'm gonna do this again. And God brings pain, and we confess, and we turn, and we change. And then we get bored, and it's over and 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 over for the rest of your life. There will always be pain because there is always sin and brokenness. There will always be a moment in that pain where you have the opportunity to confess the truth that God is God and you are not God. That you've hit the limits of your own ability and you need him. And in that moment, there will be grace just a hair's breadth away, a half a thought away, waiting to change you, waiting to be the thing that you need. It will always be there. That forgiveness will always be there. That grace will always be there. And then he will walk with you into that change. And then you will get bored. You will get distracted. You will believe a lie. You will have pride. The flesh, the devil, the world will convince you that you got to go back in this direction. And then you'll hit the pain of the lies of the idols you're believing. And it'll go over and over and over and over and over and over and over. How many of you have experienced that over and over cycle in your Christian life? The rest of you are liars. The Christian life is a lifetime of recognition of need, of confession, of receiving grace, experiencing change, and doing it over and over again. And he never, ever, ever stops offering grace.